I trust you were as encouraged as I was by that presentation. That was meaningful stuff. That's real ministry happening, friends. And it's happening through you. Thank you. I want to highlight a few of these announcements you have in your bulletin. Would you notice the third one down? Bridge of Hope Painting Project. My own dear bride is coordinating an art project for Bridge of Hope in City Heights. See her soon if you have interest. Actually, email her this week if you would. Notice as well below that a stewardship class, February 11 and 18. Our own Steve Farrington will be right here teaching after the service. A very practical, helpful class. The first Sunday will be principles for financial stewardship. The second Sunday will be interaction to help you apply those principles. I am so excited about this. We're going to do this right here so we can accommodate people and, and record this time. Highly recommend it. You can sign up. And really, the, mainly the sign up just is for if you need child care. So we want to make child care available to you. This will be after the service. And so sign up if you need childcare. Notice as well below that, marriage conference. Oh, friends, if you are married, please consider investing in your marriage by coming to my house for two consecutive evenings, uh, two consecutive weeks, rather. And we will live stream in, uh, recorded, <laughs> recorded live stream of Paul Tripp, some outstanding marriage material. Husbands, I would encourage you to take the initiative, find childcare, make these two evenings a date night, and invest in your marriage. And then lastly, ladies, would you notice women's retreat sign-up continues, and today I'm told Sharon Farrington and Mindy Colton can sign you up like on the spot, on right here in La Mesa Community Center. You can be signed up for the women's retreat, so just see those ladies right there. Thank you so much for doing that. All right. Hebrews chapter 13, if you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 13, we are returning to this wonderful book, the book of Hebrews. We have covered it in sections, and we, we stopped before Christmas, so we stopped around Thanksgiving. So I know it's been a lengthy break. We're going to finish chapter 13. We're in the final section. We've been calling it Living by Faith, picking up on chapter 11, that great chapter about faith in Christ, faith in God. And it's legitimate, certainly, to think of chapters 12 and 13 as, as ways in which we are living out that faith that we have in Christ. And so that's why we call this last section, Living by Faith. And I think you'll see that applies very much to the verses we will now cover. Chapter 13 in the book of Hebrews, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Please hear God addressing us. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God use his word in our hearts right now. Here in this passage, God, God does not address a percentage of your income that you might give financially to the work of Jesus Christ. He does not address 
whether a Christian today should tithe or give a tenth part of their income as a kind of fixed principle. He does not address whether you should tithe on the gross or net portion of your income. Nor does God address whether you should buy that new car or that new outfit. Or whether you should save more for retirement. All those may be important issues in their own way. And none of them are addressed here. Not directly at least. Not directly. Instead, what God does here in these verses is address the most important issue as it relates to our money and finances and possessions. Here, he addresses our hearts. Here, the Holy Spirit asks us, how's your heart doing with this stuff? How's your heart kind of intersecting with this real-life practical area? Of money and finances, houses and cars, saving and giving. What's going on in your soul first and foremost? You see, friends, God wants to care for our hearts. And he wants to do so here in three ways. Three, Three ways that God wants to care for our hearts, and each of these sort of builds on the next. So I hope you feel that as we continue. First, here's the first way. The first way God wants to care, he places a call on our hearts. The call on our hearts of contentment. Look look back at verse 5. Verse 5 reads, Keep your life free from love of Money. Now stop there. This certainly applies to our, our money in the form of our cash, checking account, savings account, etc. We could, we could apply this to all of our possessions as well, I think, couldn't we? Our houses, our, our cars, our 401k, what have you. God says, keep your life free, free from loving those things. Keep your life free from being devoted to those things more than you are devoted to God himself. It's not that God is against money and possessions. Let's be clear about that, right? God is the giver of money and the giver of the ability to make money. Deuteronomy 8 18. You can look it up later on. God is the giver of money and the giver of the ability to make money. So God is not against money. He's not against people having money. He's not even against people having significant amounts of money. If you read about the biblical character Job, it says of Job, quote, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, I'm not sure what the current exchange rate is between sheep, camels, and oxen, and female donkeys to U.S. dollars. I don't know what it currently amounts to, but Job was a very wealthy man, and yet it says of Job, quote, he was blameless and upright. God God is not against money, is my point. Money and the things money can buy are not sinful in and of themselves. But the love of money, here we find, is a different story. 
love of money here is, well, we're told to be free from it, to search it out of our hearts and turn away from it. And that applies whether we have lots of money or very little money. Either way, he says, keep your life free from, from devoting yourself to it. I think John Calvin put this well when, when he wrote the following. He said, the evil, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we wanted too much. That applies to money. Problem's not with money. The evil in our desire does not lie necessarily in what we want, but that we wanted too much. That's what God is after here in Hebrews 13.5. It becomes an issue of, of idolatry, of a kind of pseudo-God, a false God in our lives. Author, author Steve Hopp likens our idolatries to sipping salt water. I think it's a good metaphor. Sipping salt water. Imagine, imagine you're in a, a shipwreck of some kind. And you're out in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and you're, you're in a life raft, adrift by yourself, and you're so thirsty, aren't you? The sun is beating down on you day after day, and all you can think about is getting a drink of water. And the ironic thing, isn't it, is you're surrounded by water. You're surrounded by trillions of gallons of water. But do you drink any? No, why not? It, it can't quench your thirst. In fact, it could possibly kill you eventually if you start drinking the salt water. It's a good illustration for our idolatries, is it not? We start sipping salt water, finding it does not quench our souls. Now, you might say, Tab, I think you're being overly dramatic. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Look at the dangers with me described in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says, those who desire, here's our desires, those who desire to be rich, you're living with that goal exclusively. They fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's pretty sobering. Why is that, Paul? He tells us why. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, now be very careful in that last sentence. It's not money that is a root of all kinds of evils, is it? Take note of that. Not money. There's a root of all kinds of evils. It's, it's this heart love, this heart passion, this heart devotion to money that he says is a root of all kinds of problems and evils and a snare. It's the love that leads people to ruin their lives in gambling, for instance. It's the love that leads people to cut corners ethically. To fudge on the balance sheet, to cheat on their taxes, to, to hide what's really going on, to create some kind of personal Ponzi scheme to get ahead and get more money. And eventually it always comes crashing down. But, but this love, this danger can be more subtle than that, can it? 
It's more subtle in my heart. It can be in the man or woman who, who sacrifices their family on the altar of career and climbing the corporate ladder. It's right and good to work hard. Good to be diligent, to work in your vocation diligently, but the career can become a God at the expense of the family. It's the love we can find in a husband or wife who just wants to acquire more and more and more things to the neglect of their marriage or their relationship with God. It's the love in a person's heart that leads them to rack up credit card debt, to buy more and more things they can't afford, just for the, uh, the sense of status of having them. It can be even the love in a person who immediately jumps at a job relocation only, only for getting a larger raise. Now, is it wrong to move? No, of course not, of course not, of course not. But if that is our sole motivation to exclusively, I just want to make more money, I don't care what it costs me in my life, that's when we need to ask, am I loving this too much? It is sipping salt water in our souls. And so God says, keep your life free from that. And then gives us a better way. Then he offers us some cool, refreshing mountain spring water for our souls. In the rest of verse 5, notice what he says. And be content with what you have. Or you could translate this, and be satisfied. And be satisfied. With what you have. So here, here's, here's soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching satisfaction or contentment. Because, because you are ultimately content in God and his provision for you. So, so ask yourself here just for a moment, what have I been drinking recently? Metaphorically speaking. Have I been sipping salt water or drinking this cool, refreshing spring water. I can tell you of ways I'm aware of a little salt water action in my own life. I am, I know this is surprising, I'm 50 years old. Yes. You're shocked. You're thinking 25, I know. <laughs> I am 50 now. And so retirement is more of a reality. Not that I want to stop working, but I know at some point, vocationally, um, no one's going to want to pay me to work, and I'll be volunteering my time, which I'm glad, glad to do. So I find more and more a preoccupation with, will we have enough saved for retirement? Now, it's good to save for retirement. Steve's going to talk to us about that. We've been planning for retirement for Many years now, thinking of that day when that will happen. But now I'm more aware of that day is coming <laughs> in the not too distant future. And I play this what if game. I've created spreadsheets around the what if game. What if? What if we save this amount? And what if we save that amount? But, and what if we have this rate of return on investment? But what if the stock market crashes? And what if the housing market crashes? And what if? And what if? And what if? And what if? And I've got to examine my spreadsheet. 
Is it wrong to plan? No, I didn't say that. Steve's going to talk about that. But do you hear the salt water that I'm sipping? I think of the future through this lens of, will we have enough money? And money alone becomes the God that protects me, preserves me, and provides for me. And the living God is not in the picture. And that's when it's a problem. I'm locating my hopes in savings, not in the sovereign one. Are you tracking with me? Do you see anything similar in your life? There is cool, refreshing water here where God says, be content. Be satisfied with what you have. He has, he has therefore, a satisfaction with what you have that is not based on what you have. He has, he has a contentment for you in what, with what you possess, possess that is not based on what you possess. He has a contentment held out for you and me that it must be based on something unshakable, unmovable, something that will not fluctuate like the stock market or the housing market. He has a contentment based on himself. And so secondly, see his promise. The promise for our hearts of faithfulness. The promise for our hearts of his nearness and faithfulness. Look again at verse 5. What's the next word in verse 5? Four. Thank you. Yep. That is a very important word here. Okay. Here's now the reason. Here's the basis for your contentment. Please make this connection with me, right? He says, be content with what you have. And now he tells you why you can be content with what you have. Here's the reason. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is huge. God is saying, I will never desert you. And I will always, always, always be faithful to you. Now, the author seems to be summarizing perhaps a few different passages. It doesn't seem like he's quoting one single passage. It might be especially related to Joshua chapter 1. But it also seems to be related to to God's covenant through Scripture with his people. The, The committed relationship God enters into with his people. And the heart of that committed relationship, the heart of that covenant is God saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. It is God, this is what God does for you in Christ. It is God binding himself to you and binding you to himself. This is what God does for you in a covenant through his son. He binds you to himself and he binds himself to you and says, I I will commit all the resources of my steadfast love and all the resources of my faithfulness to care for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
And so here's the answer to Tab's sipping of salt water. Here's the answer to my constant, what if, what if, what if? The answer is God's constant faithfulness. Oh, friends, this is great. This is huge. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he told a parable that I think, I think could help us catch this a little bit. He told about a prosperous man who is riding in his carriage. So picture back in the day, you're riding in your carriage. It's a dark but starlit night, okay? Dark night, but stars are out. He has on his carriage his lanterns, and his lanterns are blazing. His lanterns are lit. And so Kierkegaard says, I, then he is safe. He fears no difficulty. He carries his light with him. He carries his light with him. But for this reason, he cannot see the stars. Did you catch that? He feels safe. He feels secure because he's got his own little lanterns with him. But his lantern light is obscuring the stars. And I think he means by that God's nearness and power. Isn't that how it is for us, friends? We light our lanterns. I have my savings account. My little lantern is going. We have our stuff, thinking our stuff's going to take care of us. And our stuff's going to protect us. And our stuff's going to provide for us ultimately. When what's happening for me in my heart is that my little lanterns are obscuring my vision of the stars. That doesn't mean stop saving. It means look at the stars. It means remember God's nearness and God's faithfulness to have. Think about how Jesus directed his first disciples to see those stars in Luke 12. And I just think Luke 12 and Matthew 6 would be great passages to turn to and, and think on regularly in this regard. But here's what Luke, Jesus said in Luke 12. Here are the stars he wants me to see and maybe you to see. It says in Luke 12, verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Don't be anxious, worried about those things, fretting all the time. Why? For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then he says, consider the ravens. Look, guys, look at the birds. Look at the birds. See the birds? See that raven over there? They neither sow nor reap. They don't put out seed for a harvest. They don't have a John Deere tractor. They have neither storehouse nor barn. They're not gathering in a harvest yet. God feeds them. And then he says, oh, of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, is Jesus saying don't work? No, he's not saying that. He's saying God provides for birds. Do you think he's going to neglect you? No, you matter a whole lot more than a bird. No offense if you're a bird lover. He goes on, verse 27. Consider the lilies. Guys, look at the wildflowers. Look at these flowers over here. Look at how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin. They don't create lots of clothing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the richest of Israel's kings, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these beautiful flowers. If God so clothes the grass with these flowers, and this grass is alive in the field today, and tomorrow it's dead, it's thrown into the oven, of how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? This grass is temporary. It's got flowers to dress it up. Is he not going to clothe you? And so he says in verse 29, Do not seek what you are to eat or to drink or be worried. Don't live your life devoted to those things above all for all the nations of the world. Those who don't trust in Christ, they seek after these things. They devote themselves to these things alone. And your father knows that you need them. He knows. He's a father to you. Instead, seek his kingdom, prioritize his saving reign as king, and these things will be added to you. Do you feel the contrast between our lanterns and the stars? Do you feel the contrast between me locating my hopes in what I can do in my savings account, of locating my hope and trust there for the future, Do you see the contrast with that versus a God who knows me and loves me? And it's really not a good trade, is it? A lantern for a star. It's really not a good trade. To trust, to trust in, to love, to be devoted to my stuff. When there's a God who says, you matter more to me than birds. A father who says, I I know what you need. A God who says, seek me, I'm going to provide for you. It's not a good trade. There was a guy named Thomas, Thomas Akempis in the 15th century. He wrote a classic devotional called The Imitation of Christ. He put it like this. He said, the man, the man who clings to created things will fall with them when they fall. But a man who embraces Jesus will be upheld forever. That's what God wants us to feel here. It's not wrong to have created things. No, they're given as gifts from God to enjoy for his glory. Created things are good. Enjoy the creator through the created things. But don't cling to them. Hope in them. Trust in them. They're going to let you down. Cling to Jesus. He will not let you down. I know know there are people here in hard situations. I, I know that. I know there are those who are unemployed. You are looking hard for a job. You just can't find one right now. I know there are people who are underemployed. I think this is a larger and growing category. The underemployed. You're working. You're working hard. You just can't make a living wage right now. Others here are wondering if your job will be there in the near future. You go to work tomorrow morning, not sure how long this job is going to last. And the rest of us, all of us, we live, we live a life from our perspective that is filled with uncertainty. Not from God's perspective, but from our perspective. Even youth, teenagers, don't you face this? 
You might look at your future and it just feels like a fog of uncertainty. Where should I go to school? What should I study? Will I get a job? Will I make enough money? All these things. And it's just like a fog of uncertainty from our vantage point. And here God is showing us how to view the fog. The lens, he says, of promise. I will never leave you as you walk through that fog. I will never forsake you as you walk through it. I will always be faithful to you. And that leaves us, thirdly, with a response. We've seen the call. We've seen the promise. Third, the response of our hearts to all of this is to be trust. The response of our hearts is to be trust. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. So, here's the response. So, we can confidently say, notice that word, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's referencing the words of Psalm 118. It's a response of trust, isn't it? God is my helper. Let that blow your mind for a while. (laughs) The God of the universe is your helper in Christ. So I will not fear. In other words, I will trust. What can man do to me? Now, he might kill me, as Jesus said, but my eternal future is entirely secure. So I need not fear. I can trust. Think about the recipients of this letter Initially, they were facing persecution. And in the first round of persecution, we are told in chapter 10, quote, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So round one of persecution, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, which I just think is crazy. Like, take my house. I don't care. I got Jesus. Cool. That's, (laughs) they're commended for that. That's where I want to be. But now it seems the author is concerned about them in this new round of suffering, isn't he? Now he's saying, don't don't trust in your money to keep you safe. Don't try to buy some semblance of security. What should they do instead? What should we do instead? Believe God's promise and respond with trust. Friend, can we not agree That if God is your helper, you need not fear. If God is your helper, you need not fear for your job. If God is your helper, you need not be enslaved to fear about your savings tab. If God is your helper, you need not fear about your house or your car or anything else. Yes, we want to plan. Yes, we must plan. Yes, we must plan. Yes, we must plan. But cut the legs out of all false security. Because he will always, 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 always be faithful to you. Now let's apply this practically. God is after our hearts. But the response doesn't end there. Biblical faith gets lived out in real life. That's why we have chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews. Our Trust gets seen. It gets lived out practically. Let me give you three arenas to consider. Spending with trust in God. 
saving with trust in God and giving with trust in God. Now, next week, we'll talk a little bit more about about the last part, and Steve's going to teach on these things. But let me just ask you three questions to consider. Three questions. Question number one. What does it look like for you to spend with trust in God? Because you have real needs. You have real needs. And I know spending for real needs can be fretful and anxious. What does it look like for you to spend with contentment? To spend not fretting, but trusting. What does it look like for you to be able to go to Costco with this promise in view? He's not going to leave you. Question number two. What does it look like for you to save with trust in God? To save with trust in God. Because it's wise and good to plan for the future as you're able to do so. But not like I described myself doing. With me investing my hopes in my savings. Looking to my lanterns and not to the stars. What does it look like for you to save? Not out of fear. But knowing God is your helper. He will not forsake you. And then question number three. What does it look like for you to give with trust in God? To give with trust in God. Because this kind of response frees us for radical generosity. Friends, we can be radically generous in light of the radical generosity of God toward us. I don't know if you realize it or not, but it is... The good news of Jesus Christ that ultimately fuels this trust like nothing else. The good news of Jesus is is rocket fuel for trust in the faithfulness of God. And the book of Hebrews is filled with rocket fuel. Filled with rocket fuel. Let me give you just two promises that we covered months ago. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself suffered when Tempted because Jesus suffered when tempted. He's able to help you as your great high priest when you are being tempted. You have a high priest, Hebrews says, who stands ready to help the believer right now. So he's able to help you have a heart of contentment with what you have. He's able to help you have a heart that banks on his promise of faithfulness to never leave you and never forsake you. He's able to help you have a heart that is eager to respond with trust. Your high priest is eager to help you today and here's why. He paid for all of your sins. Hebrews 10:14 by a single offering, by a single offering he Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You want to hear that again? Yeah, let's hear that again. For by a single offering, one time sacrifice, he has perfected you if you are in Christ, though you are being sanctified. So one time sacrifice, he has atoned for any way you're aware of sipping salt water today. One time sacrifice, paying in full for any misplaced trust you're aware of or misplaced worship. Listen, the God who gave his own son in that single offering is the same God who promises to never leave you. So will he leave you? 
The God who gave his own son in that single offering is the one who promises to never forsake you. Is he going to forsake you? The God who gave his son in a single offering for your sins and mine promises to be faithful to you. Is he going to stop being faithful to you? He's not. He loves you. And he has bound you to himself and bound himself to you. And friends, this good news is irrefutable proof that you can trust his promise. And so we're going to end by banking on gospel promises by taking the Lord's Supper together. I hope you're feeling the the call to trust, the call to faith that just should seem so natural in light of who God is and what he's done. We want to take the Lord's Supper to just assure our hearts of that reality, that he is this God who has shown us this love in his Son. Now, if you are here and you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ, thank you for coming Thank you for being here. We're so delighted you are here. This, this supper is for those who have already believed. So please just pass the trays down the aisles. But, but I, would, I would plead with you. I would urge you not to pass on Jesus Christ. Listen, by a single offering, he can take away your sins as well. By his single offering, he can reconcile you to God. By his single offering, you can know God as a father. He is a judge who must punish our sins. But he can be a father to you right now. If you turn from going your own way and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you have believed on Jesus, please take the Lord's Supper. And please take a piece of bread, take the cup, hang on to both. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. But as you do, let me ask you to be intentional. Let me ask you to remember the assurance of his promise to you in Christ. He will never, ever leave you. He will never, ever forsake you. Would the ushers please come? The music team, please come as well.